Show a for all mankind podcast. I'm your host, Nick Yeager, and with me today are Rick. So this week, I'm not sure we should be saying this anymore, but hi, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> Chris. Hi, Bob. And Kevin. Hi, Bob. Today, we're discussing the fifth episode of season four. As usual, I'll start with my synopsis and then we'll move on to the discussion. But before we get to that, let's go over a bit of listener feedback. And by listener, I mean today's panelists. Chris and Kevin, uh, you both disagree with Rick's assertion that Mars rocks would be radioactive. I disagree with me too now. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I just, I felt like we would have heard about it. It would just be general knowledge if moon rocks were like dangerously radioactive. And I can't imagine that they would be less irradiated than something from Mars. Yeah. I mean, I found a 1969 paper where they measured the moon rocks and indeed it's not particularly radioactive. So like, the radiation on the moon and Mars is high because the solar radiation is not being, you know, blocked by a magnetic field or, or the atmosphere, but it's not it's not strong enough to like take rocks and turn them into radioactive material. Yeah, okay. I, I after I said everything I did last week, I, I decided to actually do some research <laughs> instead of just talking out my ass. And uh, yeah, I found out that being irradiated doesn't necessarily mean being radioactive afterwards. Yeah, I was but, really I mean, wrong about that. But our general points still stand in terms of, you know, it's not like NASA or Helios would just let anyone send anything home without inspecting what they're sending. No, especially not from Mars, because there may be microbes in there that... Uh... Yeah, so it's, you know, Miles' scheme still doesn't really make any sense. Uh, Kevin, did you also want to speak to um, your thoughts on whether Mars Obsidian would be red or black? Right. Yeah. So I think it would be black. I mean, again, I'm not an aerologist or a geologist, but um, uh, again, I did find a paper from 2015 where they met they, you know, the Mars Express orbiter that's in orbit of Mars took some measurements and then they attributed it to obsidian. And, mm-hmm. you know, they said it's black. I mean, that, that was the take home message. Now, you can rationalize that maybe there's some like really special case under which the obsidian would end up looking red for some special reasons. And that's why that obsidian is so special. Uh, yeah. Also, it's just Miles calling it obsidian. We don't really know that it is obsidian, right? Well, what obsidian is volcanic glass? It's all—it's just lava that cooled in a way that it didn't turn into fluffy rock. It, it turns into glass. Although, I, full disclosure here, I may have been wrong about this too because there is red obsidian on Earth. Okay, it all depends so on the chemical go. composition. Oh, you're such a smarty pants. Hoist <laughs> it on your own petard. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, we're not allowed to nitpick the show if we can't also nitpick ourselves. So now that that's out of the way. If nothing else, I can be an example of changing your mind when the data suggests you should. There you go. A lesson for Ed. (laughs) (laughs) All right. On to episode five, Goldilocks. Uh, We open with the Payne telescope, obviously named after Thomas Payne, the White House liaison who died in a plane crash. Uh, the telescope captures an image of what turns out to be an asteroid. And the peeps at NASA and Helios are super excited because this asteroid is probably full of the valuable mineral iridium. The Russians are less excited because Russia controls most of Earth's iridium. 
So while an influx of this mineral would be a huge boost to the American and perhaps worldwide economy, it might hurt the Russian economy. Uh, another issue is capturing the Goldilocks asteroid. We've got six months until it's out of range of Mars, so the race is on to get this season's promised gold rush going. To further drive home just how good NASA had it when their government liaison was Thomas Paine, the new liaison is a giant walking turd. <laughs> and if ever you thought Eli was an insufferable bureaucrat, you can now see that he's just as frustrated by political bullshit as the rest of us. You can see the burnout happening to his brain as he tries to deal with this new guy. But wait, it gets worse because President Al Gore, in a speech, takes credit for discovering the asteroid, which I guess is Moonshow's way of mocking Gore for that time he claimed to have created the internet. So Gore's goof makes things all the more difficult for Eli in his negotiations with Irina, and he basically has no choice but to capitulate to her demands that a summit be held in Russia to negotiate how much each M7 nation will get from Goldilocks. Things are tough at Helios HQ as well, because Kelly has to learn from the radio that Dev plans to go to Mars in person to oversee the Goldilocks situation. And 10 points to me, because I knew as soon as Dev was introduced last season that he'd never be content to chill on Earth as long as going to Mars was an option. Uh, the side effects of Dev's spontaneity is that Aleda and Kelly have to change their plans as well. Aleda has been promoted out of engineering and into management, and she has to now schmooze with senators and become a negotiator. She is not into this, and I do not blame her. No. <laughs> as to Kelly, she's worried that Dev is scrapping her life-seeking project, but no, He's accelerating it, which means Kelly also needs to go to Mars so that she can train her team on the way. She's reluctant to go because she doesn't want to abandon her son the way Ed abandoned his son and the way Dev's mom abandoned him. Or at least that's how he sees it. He goes to visit his mama at a Kenyan community center to say goodbye forever, and she remembers things differently. She wanted Dev to come with her when she left Dev's dad. So Dev essentially abandons his mom, but later on proves that he has at least the shadow of a soul when Kelly confronts him, or she confronts his back because he refuses to turn around and show her his reaction. Kelly insists that she be allowed to bring her Mars baby back to Mars. Dev weeps, presumably moved by the sheer concept of a parent actually giving a shit about their child. And he agrees that little Alex is welcome to join them on Mars. Meanwhile, things at Happy Valley aren't going great because Miles is still milesing all over the place. He's making eyes at Massey, but is also pleased that his wife seems to have renewed her interest in him now that they're making money. Speaking of wives, Miles wants to know if Ilya is making progress with extracting Lee's wife from North Korea. And Ilya doesn't think it'll be possible to do it all. Like, yeah, no shit. But he doesn't want to admit this to Lee yet. But that's not all. Ilya's contact on Earth has sent up a newspaper clipping advertising Miles's obsidian jewelry. So Ilya is now aware of Miles's disobedient side hustle. Never cross a mob boss, Miles. <laughs> Things aren't great on the upper decks either, mainly because Ed has lost all semblance of being a reasonable human being. He's being so contrary that it's borderline insubordinate, and when Danielle calls him out on it, he keeps pooping in her face. She deals with it as best she can, but eventually Palmer, the dude who manages the lower decks, notices Ed's tremor and reluctantly reports it to Danielle. She doesn't want to believe that Ed would be that irresponsible, but she observes him and realizes he is just that reckless. 
She confronts him and things get even more heated than they did last week. And she ends their fight by relieving him of duty. About time. Mm -hmm. And throughout the episode, we've been treated to long overdue flashbacks to old school Happy Valley. And we see Danielle preparing food rations for little Danny in his exile. As time goes on, we see that their rations are being stretched and everyone is suffering. Danielle is suffering a lot because she's giving her rations to Danny the Lesser. But aside from literal starvation, he's also losing his mind in solitary confinement. He begs to be allowed to rejoin the rest of them, but Danielle refuses. And when finally there's no food left, she goes to break the news to little Danny, and Ed goes with her. But they discover the lifeless body of little Danny sitting in a spacesuit, staring off into space, presumably having let himself die of asphyxia. Or at least that's how I took it. I think he's dead. It's not like... It was hard to tell. He didn't move. His skin was gray. I'm going to assume he's dead, but you never know with this show. Yeah, they could have deadened him up a bit more. I think maybe they were trying to make it ambiguous. Yeah. But their reactions... They seemed to be shocked. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Okay, so on to the discussion. Um, A line that struck me in this episode was when Dev's mom called ambition a disease. There are several examples in this episode of ambition being destructive. Like uh, Dev is so single-minded that he seems incapable of building connections with other people. Al Gore's desire to be reelected leads to his ill-conceived speech, which makes Eli's job all the more difficult when dealing with Irina and Russia. Miles's desire for money has gotten him knocked down at every turn. And now that Ilya knows about his uh, side business, things will likely get worse. Massey is realizing that what she's wanted her whole life is maybe not so great after all. Aleda sees that moving to Helios means moving away from the work she enjoys. Kelly sees that prioritizing her career will be harmful to her child. Ed's refusal to give up his flight status is literally putting people's lives in danger. And Danielle is the outlier, where her ambition takes a backseat to her desire to do what she perceives as the right thing. Okay, so we're going to talk about each of these characters in turn. There's there's a lot going on. This episode, I felt, was, I don't know if return to form is the right phrase, but I found it very exciting. I was on the edge of my seat the whole time, sort of like yelling at the screen, like, bring your bebe to Mars, Kelly. <laughs> well, I mean, okay. I know the bar isn't very high this season, but this is the best episode so far. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Okay, we'll start with uh, Dev. I have long railed against him. I think he's a narcissist, and that basically makes him irredeemable in my view. Uh, But even my cold, dead heart had some sympathy for him in this episode. The show seems to be saying that Dev's toxic personality is down to his upbringing. Like, he blames his mom, and she blames his dad. Do you think Dev is right to resent his mom for leaving? I think that Dev has no choice but to resent his mom for leaving because you're 100% on the money. Dev is a narcissist, which by definition makes him incapable of forming relationships with people. From what I've heard, narcissists have two moves. It's either flex or retreat. And it seems to me that um, he can't really flex with her because she doesn't give him that pushback. So he he doesn't know how to deal with her, so he retreats. And... Um, whether or not you want to attribute it to their history, of course, there's going to be some emotion tied up in there. But I, I don't know that he has the tools to do anything else but what he did. I, I believe that it's also the same reason he's going to Mars. And there's a lot going on with Dev. I mean, he, he got his company back, so he was flexing. He he came in, he took the reins, and here I am, I'm back. 
But now, as he, you know, unceremoniously promoted Aleda, that's him retreating and saying, I don't want to deal with this. I'm in charge again, but it's not going to be on my terms. I can already tell that with this summit and this agreement and Nassau breathing down my neck. So I'm going to retreat to Mars. You take care of this. I can go on to Mars where I can flex all I want because there's not a lot going on up there. I'll be the big fish in the small pond. And um, that's where I see him going. And I don't think he was crying because of Kelly saying that she wanted to bring her son. I really think that his his fight with his mom or that 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 finality probably got to him because I think he was crying before she came in. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, also, he was looking at the rain and that's TV shorthand for I'm sad. <laughs> <laughs> I like that they gave us a shred of sympathy for him in this episode. I can't, I mean, we don't have enough data to know which, if either is right or wrong between him and his mom. Probably a combination of things. Yeah, yeah. Very few people have a a completely non-contentious relationship with their parents, especially when you, you know, in a situation where there was a divorce when you were young. These dreams of space destroyed your father. Space did not destroy him. You did. Everything that he did, he did for his family for our future. He never recovered after you left us. I never left you, my son. You know this. I was there. Don't you remember? Yes, I remember how I begged you to come with me. And you want me to leave him with no one at all? I could never do that. The truth is, he had already infected you with his disease of ambition. Okay, God forbid anybody have any ambition. I do have something to say about Dev. so as you were reading out your your list, Nick, one of the things that I was thinking about, basically this episode frames ambition, as you said, as a disease or as something bad. And as I was thinking about it, you, you could sort of think of it as in like ambition leads to things that are like hard for the person, but maybe good for society. And I'll take like Dev and Ed as sort of examples of that, where their ambition is kind of toxic to their own life and the people immediately around them. But you could say that society benefits from it, right? Like you get fusion, you get Mars, you get like space program, all this wonderful stuff. Um, So there's, I don't know how much I truly believe this, but you could make the argument that there's something there that like the ambition is like to the benefit of society, if not to the person themselves. And Dev is like a good example of that. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And I mean, I guess you would have to start defining terms like, you know, what is considered beneficial, is space exploration beneficial? Is it a net good or a net bad? And, you know, these it's always a spectrum. There's, it's never just one thing. But that is an interesting argument that perhaps people, those really strong personalities who are toxic in terms of social interactions, they keep the story going. And I don't just mean the story in terms of like a TV show, but they make the world turn in a lot of ways. Now, there's a danger with that argument that some people take it to mean that that like justifies the right, toxic that behavior. Right, that that's carte blanche to Yeah, of like some, some like great CEO, it's like, well, that guy has to be an asshole because that's the only way to get things done. And like, I don't buy that, but there is some, some element to it. Well, I heard a couple of news stories a while back and I didn't read the articles or anything. It was just kind of talking on people talking about these studies that psychopaths, a lot of the most successful people in business and stuff if you test them, they they fall on the side of psychopathy. And yeah. not all psychopaths are mass murderers, but a lot of very successful people are psychopaths. So I'm wondering yeah. if there's some kind of connection there. Yeah, I think so. I think a, a lack of empathy for other people is a, 
um, an aid in terms of, you know, rising the ranks of any business because you're not worried about hurting the people beneath you. And so, and so you do what it takes, you know, you're, you're willing to be cutthroat. You're willing to do whatever is necessary for the bottom line, the bottom line being either, you know, profit or progress or both. Mm -hmm. So there's something to that. Uh, okay, we'll we'll move on now to Eli. Uh, I don't have much more to say about him. I feel like we covered everything I have to say about him last week. Um, Chris or Kevin, did either of you have anything to add to the Eli conversation? <laughs> Seeing <laughs> heads shaking like, meh, Eli's boring. <laughs> no, I think, honestly, I think that Eli is an interesting character because he's going at it with all of the optimism that I think most of us as fans embody uh, when we think of NASA and something like a Mars settlement. And he seems to be genuinely gung-ho about making a go of Happy Valley and bringing a benefit, not just to the United States, although that is his default because he's American, but to the partners that are in that summit that are they're all working towards it. And I feel like he is in a position where he didn't realize he would have to maneuver politically, but this is where I find it hard to believe if the guy is, I guess, some kind of businessman or or CEO dealing with like a hard nosed union like the UAW. I don't think that he would be as Pollyanna as they present him on the show. I think that he would be a little bit more seasoned in navigating setbacks and difficult personalities. But he just seems to be completely out of his depth here, especially when it comes to uh, Irina. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, her approach to negotiating, which is my way or the highway. So I'm kind of unsure if they're trying to paint him as incompetent or just or just un, unprepared because he seems to be competent. He seems to know how to navigate the people that are in his care and to genuinely try to do the right thing by them while balancing the needs of his bosses. But I, I just I. The more I see him in the role, the less I buy him as someone that was handpicked for that role. I see what you're saying, because he seems to operate on the assumption that the people around him are going to be equally enthusiastic and reasonable as him. And that's not what he's coming across. But you would have thought someone in his position who did that whole like he fixed the whatever car issue back in the day. You think he would have come across like idiots before. Yeah, or or not even idiots, just people who are not really there to negotiate in good faith. Mm -hmm. We're not all trying to get the best outcome for everybody involved. It's it's kind of like, screw you, the hell with you, hooray for me. Mm -hmm. and I think he should be more cognizant of that being a mindset that he would have to deal with and to to learn how to, to conquer, really, to, to, to get around so that he can get his job done. They're they're going the opposite way with it, which I, to me that's that's the big question mark for writers that are so smart. I'm trying to figure out because writers aren't dumb, so usually a character's there for a reason to, to give a point of view or some lesson to come across. Mm -hmm. And I'm having a very hard time figuring out like allegorically where he fits into the puzzle of this season. Right. So I can offer a theory that I just came up with. So it's not well thought out, but as you as you were talking, you could argue that. What the writers are trying to do is to show a bit of a contrast between the earlier seasons, like the starting of the program, where like, for lack of a better word, like the best of the best, were, you know, like it was the Margos of the world that were like running the show. And uh, whereas in this regime, I don't think Eli is 
incompetent, but he's kind of middling, I guess you could say. And so his heart's in the right place, but he's not doing that great of a job. And he's kind of, you know, pressed upon from all sides. And so it's then just kind of showing the evolution of space from being, um, yeah, this kind of like the frontier to being more and more mundane. More routine. And- yeah. Instead of the elite and the heroes, we now have the, the politicians, the bureaucrats. Yeah. 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 Well, the the impression I get from him, well, he he keeps uh, underestimating Irina at every step, but also, and and this is something I just came up with while you were all were talking, so this isn't well thought out either. Um, there's a difference between negotiating with with a union in your own country under the same laws and under the same mores and the same you know standards, where both sides want something from the other, and so there's a give and take. There's there is leverage on both sides of we, I want this from you. You want this from me. Let's find a place in the middle where we're both happy and pissed off at the same time. Arena doesn't need shit from from us, and she's coming from a total standpoint of we would be very happy to see the U.S. take a flying leap, and we'll just take over. So Eli is trying to negotiate with someone who doesn't care, who's someone who doesn't need anything we have because they have everything we have because she's got Margot. Mm. Mm. It also occurs to me now that maybe Eli was put in because he's good at steering a ship and the negotiations for all of this stuff have already been hammered out by people who came before him or who are more adept at it, like Dev. And he's just there as an administrator, but Mm -hmm. he's like Lando on Cloud City. All of a sudden, the Empire has decided to change the deal (laughs) and he doesn't know how to how to get around that or how to confront that. So maybe maybe that's part of it, too. I, I totally agree with that, yeah. Okay, so we had more to say about Eli than I thought. <laughs> we'll move on to Miles. If we must. <laughs> you guys with Miles. Well, so, Miles well, is the well, new whipping boy, man. <laughs> okay, the, I'm going to ha- let you have your say, Chris, because you just said it about Eli, that like the writers are not dumb and like each character is serving a purpose. And like in our group chat, you've been saying like, no, you guys are missing the point of Miles. So please educate us, Chris. What is the point of Miles? It's gonna get. I'm gonna get like a a, a little bit meta here and step back. I, I see this season as Mars being an allegory for the 21st century, and for the changing norms of the 21st century. And I feel like Miles is supposed to be the new sort of everyman that is tasked with confronting the reality of that 21st century in the workplace where all the promises of the 20th century have been broken. Um, he went up there to mine and he got there and that guarantee is no longer. So he's stuck doing a menial task for less money, not seeing a way forward and just having to, and, and having no options. He can't, he can't leave. He can't better a situation uh, in the way that they said that he could. So he's forced to find a new path. He's forced to do stuff that he wouldn't have considered in order to take care of his family. He's forced to pivot and to adapt and to let go of the promises and to figure a way forward. So I see him as, you know, so many people that I see online now saying, um, the, the general conversation is we'll never be able to afford a house. We'll never be able to to have what our parents had because it's just a different world now. It seems like that aspect of the American dream is pretty much out of reach for so many people to the point where it's it's almost dead. It's almost an anachronism. And I feel like Miles is sort of the embodiment of just like the affable white dope who 
came up with expectations and now is forced to reconcile with the fact that you're not going to get the bill of goods that you were promised. So you you can't like fault him for trying everything he can to you know help his family to give his daughters a home to make sure that his wife has what she needs to raise the kids in that impossible situation he's laudable because he's not just just bemoaning himself you guys are making fun of the fact that he was like always like this get rich quick guy this amway guy what that shows me is he's an entrepreneur and he's willing to think in whatever terms he needs to to move forward whereas someone like me would be unemployed for years and years because I went to school for this and this is who I am and this is what I do. And it took me a very long time to realize that you have to let go of the idea of who you think you are. And I feel like Miles does, he's very good at doing that. And because of that, he's going to be the king of Mars. He is going to be the most successful. He's going to be Dev's right-hand man, or he's going to supplant Dev. I just see that happening. And I see it happening with Ilya as, as sort of the baby steps. Okay. Interesting. I mean, I think those were good points. And I do think that that's what the writers are going for in terms of, yeah, connecting the this season to like the modern era. And what I'm wondering is whether like, there's two ways this could go. And Chris, you just mentioned one of them, like Miles basically comes out on top. The other possibility is that it, this eventually crashes and burns. Like eventually one of these schemes catches up with him and he gets like put in the brig or, or, or something. And I'm actually surprised it hasn't happened so far. Like he seems to be really lucky at just like each of these schemes and things he does and he takes these risks and they keep paying off for him mm-hmm. and i keep waiting for like something bad to happen to him and so i guess the writers are, are gonna go one way or the other either say like nope this is the right way for someone to behave in the modern era is like do what you can or they're gonna say like hold on there is a thing as such a thing as taking too many risks and and i feel like that's that's the fun of it because it's me thinking the way i think you're doing it wrong you deserve to get caught and it's going to catch up with you you know what not not necessarily just because he's not playing by the quote rules doesn't mean that he's he's you know destined to fail because the cosmic justice of it all. How many people in business here on Earth now ever get called into account for anything that they do? It's 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 not a crime if you can get away with it. I mean, it's a crime, but it's it, it's almost like when when I was in in school and we saw I think it was the movie White Heat, and the clear message of the film was yeah, crime does pay as long as you don't get caught. And I don't fact, know that Miles is that that extreme, but I feel like there's an element of that in there. Well, and you drew a connection between Miles and Dev, and that it's insightful because like Dev is, yeah, he's doing the same thing just at a much grander scale, right? Like he breaks all the rules whenever he wants. He does things that I'm sure are legal or at least like really mm-hmm. like heavy-handed, and he gets away with it. And so why shouldn't Miles at the at the doing the same thing at a smaller scale? And and just think about Miles. What he did was he used his connection with Massey to get close to Ilya. And then he presented Ilya with with a solution to a problem. He identified a need that Ilya had, and he fulfilled that need. He became of use. I mean, that's all you need to get ahead is to get in with the right people and give them an excuse to keep you around, be the guy in the room. And that's what Miles, he's adept at doing that. So that's what I'm saying. It's just you have this, this notion that he's this fuck up who's running this black market operation, who's eventually going to get caught because he's too dumb for his own good. But I don't think there is any such thing. I think he's he's like the Dunning-Kruger principle in operation. He doesn't know what he doesn't know, and it doesn't bother him. So he's not as scared as we would be because we're so beset with how things should be. He's just making it work according to what he sees in front of him. I don't disagree with a word you said. My problem with Miles, other than the fact I find him utterly unlikable, 
is I don't want this story in my moon show. That's that's been my problem with this storyline all along. Um, I'll agree with you there, but I feel like the show is crossing from science fiction, space, space fantasy to social science in this in this season. And I think maybe that's why I haven't been enjoying it as much. When Goldilocks came on the scene, it was like a breath of fresh air. Yeah. It's finally Moon Show is back. You know, it's about outer space again. But I really think like they're focusing more on social issues and social sciences, which is also the purview of science fiction. Uh, so. Yeah. I, normally, I don't mind it. I just find this to be it, it's clumsy. It feels like it's being hammered in to someplace where it wasn't before. And I and I, I I fully understand the desire of the writers to to do that, to, you know, turn the mirror on society and stuff. If this is what they're going to do with the show, I'm going to lose interest. And this is exactly what they're doing with the show. And I am losing interest. And like, you know, and like you said, as soon as we had an asteroid and we have a space problem to fix, I was like, yes, finally. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe this is all in service to that space story. Maybe we needed certain elements in place to play out uh, the maybe the vision that they have for the season overall. And it's maybe it could be the foundational stuff. You know, if if at the end of the season it all clicks into place and it, and it makes sense, uh, you know, I, I have in the past said, OK, I didn't like this when it was happening. But now that we see where it's gone, I'm cool with it. Uh, I've done, you know, I've done that before. I'm willing to do it again. But right now I couldn't give two shits about Miles and his, oh, my wife, you know, I got a wife, but, uh, you know, I'm jealous of this girl up here and pretty boy Russian is touching my shirt and I don't like that. And Ilya is like, oh, I know what you're doing, but I'm going to have a drink with you. And, you know, ooh, intrigue. I couldn't care less if they all got blown (laughs) out an airlock next week. (laughs) All right. All right. Okay. We'll move on for Miles. But we're not going to move too far. Um, you know, Chris, you brought up Massey. So I would say that Massey is sort of um, an illustration of, you know, the sunk cost fallacy. You know, she expresses that she can't give up now that she's in so deep, but she's becoming increasingly ambivalent about this whole Mars job. Um, is now the time to jump out? Or with Goldilocks, like, is now the time to stay the course? Basically, if you're Massey, what do you do? Kevin, I'll go to you. You haven't spoken as much as the other two. Really? Um, <laughs> Talker. <laughs> I mean, if I was in Massey's position, I would uh, I would just push through. I think I think that's the right call in this particular situation because there's like a you're kind of in a trap situation. B there's like tremendous upside to just like you've come this far to just putting in the final work, get all the bonus checks, then you know head home at the next opportunity and like change your life. That's fine, but. Yeah, while on Mars and like with this huge opportunity in front of you, I don't think this is the right time to kind of like reinvent your life necessarily. So, Chris, if you're saying that the show or the way they're going this season is this whole allegory for the 21st century, does Massey now represent that sort of like Miles, like someone taking control of this, the the hard knocks life is dealing them? Is she going to become like the leader of like some sort of union or something? I, you know, Massey is the, she to me is the question mark. I'm not really sure her motivation because the whole first half of the season has been her bitching about how the lower deckers don't get any recognition, how they're basically expendable, how uh, they've been screwed over time and time again. And now she's finally at the point where some of the, some of the things that she's saying have been hurting them can be 
forgotten about. They can go out and actually do the job that they were brought up there to do. So I I don't understand why she's having this crisis all of a sudden when literally mana from heaven is on the way. So I I I'm at a loss. I honestly don't I don't know. Depressed is like a strong word, but she's just like discouraged. Maybe defeated. She, yeah, defeated. Disillusioned. That's how I sort of yeah, yeah. disillusioned. Every D word. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and so I mean, I feel like like this would have been something to help her turn it around, and instead, it seems to be having the opposite effect. Right. Well, and that's what's interesting. I actually yeah, found I, her. I, I, I mean, she's she's sort of been a little bit window dressing up to this point, but her showing that ambivalence to me finally made her a little bit interesting because mm-hmm. her reaction to getting what she thought she wanted was not what she anticipated, and yeah, I, I do I, think that's relatable. Well, yeah, exactly. I agree. It's like it's a good move on the part of the writers in the sense that like it's interesting and it, it like surprised me. I was like, oh, wait a second. And then but that's realistic because that is something that people do experience in life where you chase something. Yeah. And then when you get it, you're like, oh, this is not as good as I thought it was. And yeah. it's not really what I wanted. Exactly. Having is not nearly so satisfying a thing as wanting. It exactly. is logical, but it is often true. After a time, you may find that having is not so pleasing a thing after all as wanting. It is not logical, but it is often true. Yeah, and there might be an element to Massey of like her identity has become being the person who bitches about what she doesn't have. You know, being the lower decker with like being a have not and then suddenly getting a thing and having evidence that Danielle is paying attention is like, oh, wait a second. Now what am I going to bitch about? So, yeah, so maybe could this be um, the writer's way to show the, the flip side of, of, of Miles in the sense that you can you can choose two paths. If you feel downtrodden upon, if you feel like I have not, you can say, look, there are people out there that are doing it, that are getting it done. So all I have to do is figure out a way for me to do it. Or you can go the other way, which I see a lot of people just give up. It's never going to happen for me. Everything is insurmountable. Even if there's an opportunity staring me in the face, I'd rather lament at what I don't have instead of going after uh, the opportunity so that I can have. I came out to have a good time and I'm honestly feeling so attacked right now. And I, I feel like there is quite a defeatist streak that I see in many younger people. And maybe this is just me turning into an old man. Uh, but at the same time, I feel like there. There's a lot of pity, pity party stuff going on, whereas that's still no matter what, that's not going to help you get forward. The world is going to be unfair. You're going to have to navigate obstacles and maybe them having her with this opportunity right in front of her failing to capitalize on it is maybe some kind of oblique commentary on that. I'm just spitballing here. That's it. And and I'm enjoying the spitballing. The only thing I'll say to what you just said is. I do think there is like an element of every time a certain generation reaches a certain age, we look at the people younger than us and they're like, oh, they're so self-pitying. I mean, we're all Gen X here, more or less. Like, come on, we were the pity party generation. And so for us to now look at the younger folks and be like, oh, these kids today, like we were those kids at one point. And so I I guess my point just being... 
you know, eventually the kids today will grow up and yeah, they'll either miles it up or Massey it up. They'll either, you know, kick themselves into gear and, and, and do the thing or they won't. And mm-hmm. in every generation, there are people who fall into both of those camps. And I think that's a perfect way to put it. And I was actually a little bit trepidatious about bringing this whole thing up because I didn't want to be the why in my day guy. Yeah, yeah. You know, I don't want to just needlessly shit all over the younger generation because I see things and aspects of their behavior that frankly drive me crazy. Mm-hmm. But uh, again, things are just... very different for them than they were when we were younger, though. And things were very different for us than when our parents were younger. Yeah. yeah. You find a way forward. Yeah. You know, so anyway. Something just occurred to me again. I wonder if Pretty New Russian Boy is uh, has been instructed by the new power structure to sow the seeds of dissent. Hmm. Oh, OK. Well, that that's a good segue into um, Margot. <laughs> uh, so Aleda is on her way to Russia. So yep. like. You dun, know, I, dun, dun. Yeah, gee, I wonder who she'll encounter <laughs> when she's there. Um, so something that occurred to me as I was editing last week's episode was that perhaps Irina is the one who orchestrated Margot's arrest and mild torture so that she could then swoop in and be perceived as the savior and that, you know, this is all part of her master plan for whatever it is she has in store for Margot whether it is that she just wants Margot to be on her side or there's something more severe going on. Okay. So I think yeah, you're I wanna... absolutely right with that. Now that you yeah. say it out loud. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Chris, I know you have strong feelings about Margot. Do you have anything you want to say about her before we uh, move do you on agree with us about anything, sir? <laughs> I, I, I have to be honest and I don't want to, I don't want to bring the show down. Uh, they have turned Margot, who was one of my favorite characters in the first few seasons, into she is my my Miles. I could not give less of a shit about what's happening with Margot. I don't care about that storyline. I don't I, I, I don't even like the character anymore. I thought the character was interesting when she was playing off of everybody at NASA and she she, you know, got herself into the position as director and she was running the show. I thought that that was an amazing evolution of that character. But now that she's in Russia, you know, doing math to uh, like a lap dog to to this to this puppet master. All right. I mean, uh, do we have to spend 40 minutes every fucking episode on this, though? OK, we were with her for 10 <laughs> seconds this episode. <laughs> it's like how many how many lingering shots of her limping down the Russian sidewalk are we have to endure? <laughs> We didn't get any of those this episode. Calm down. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait. I I forgot about the five minutes of filling the water bottle. I mean. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, yeah, that's the that's of everything this season. That is what is disappointing me the most. Uh, The fact that Ren Schmidt, who is an amazing, amazing actress and one of the best characters that the show has given us is sort of in this weird sideline limbo in Russia that I just could not care less about. It's just utterly uninteresting. Kevin, what are your thoughts on Margot? I mean, again, she's one of the top characters for me in the early seasons, for sure. I see what you're saying about it kind of not being exciting on screen to see her in this situation. But the reason I like it is that it kind of um, 
the the show is being true to itself in the sense that it's like there were consequences like all the things that she did in the early seasons like now she is defeated she is a lapdog she is kind of like in this horrible situation and it's painful to watch but i think it's supposed to be like it's supposed to be like this is the consequence of her having done all those things so you know i kind of like that they they're bold enough to do that but i mean yeah. is this a show that that deals out like cosmic retribution is does there have to be that that sense of justice because i don't think that she did unless like i speculated when we did the preview show that she was somehow complicit in the the jsc bombing and she's she was no i refuse she was no not no and no, i'm just saying but that's the only way that i could see them doing this as like a punishment because I don't think that she did anything especially wrong in her time as director. She was just driven yeah, and but... vicious and ballsy. I mean, so it's, but, that... but to be, to be clear, I wasn't saying that this was like a just uh, punishment. I I'm just, it was just realistic. So I like, the, realistic I like, I like the show being internally, internally consistent, even though I don't think it's necessarily like the, the right moral outcome for what she did. I guess the word that I'm having trouble with there is consequence. She gave state secrets to the Russians. Yeah, there is she... no doubt that Margot broke the law. Exactly. Yeah. So this is not a cosmic punishment. It's just a legal ramification of her actions, gotcha. of her illegal actions. I see. You know, I completely forgot about the spying thing. <laughs> 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 Sorry. And maybe maybe she's also meant to be a counterpoint to Miles. Because like what Margot does, you know, she is being, if you will, cosmically punished. And then Miles can like, stumble around in a space suit and fall down a crater and be totally fine. So, Miles in his crevasse. He's not, he's not just fine. He, he's making money. Like, yes. That's it. He, like I said, he's failing upwards. Ugh, whatever. Okay. I'm not going to go back to Miles. I do okay. have a scientific quibble as long as we're, we're kind of getting close enough to it. I do go have, and Kevin, you may. You, okay. The James Webb telescope, which is the, the pain telescope is clearly that almost a decade sooner than we actually got the real thing up there. Uh, they did one thing with it that kind of bothered me. They pointed it at the Earth because they showed the Goldilocks next to the Earth in an image from the telescope. And one of the things about that telescope, unless they're just making it look like it and it's different or they just didn't research, is it's an infrared telescope. They can't point it at the inner solar system or it will absolutely fry its detectors. That's why it's a million miles out because <laughs> it's got to be as close to absolute zero as they can get it. So it can, it can pick up the infrared signals from the earliest moments of the universe that we can see. Uh, so aiming it at the Earth would kill it. Well, so I don't think that was the Earth. I think that was Mars. I think that the, the that image was meant to be like the edge of Mars and then in the distance. What So oh, the, the, implica it? the implication was that the Payne slash Webb telescope was facing away from Earth towards Mars. That was my interpretation. Oh, OK, I, right. I yeah. thought it looked like like Earth, but I didn't I didn't. Yeah, I thought it was Mars because it only made sense um, because it's heading. I mean, if it's a, if it's already past Mars, it's not going to be heading towards Mars because the sun's gravitational pull is stronger. Right. So if it's coming from any angle, it's got to be from the outer solar system towards towards Mars, as yeah. opposed to maybe passing the Earth on, in route to Mars somehow. I feel like the sun would divert it away. Well, they even said it it was because of a interaction with Jupiter that it came yeah, in. Jupiter. So it's, it's from yeah. the asteroid belt or the Jovian region of the solar system. So, yeah, it's coming from outer uh, inward. All right. I, I misinterpreted what I saw. So never mind then. <laughs> but now I know how those space telescopes work. So thank you, Rick. Well, that one does. Yeah, that's it's that's why it's where it is. And it was, you know, an incredible feat of engineering getting it to where it is. But it got there 11 years late. <laughs>
Yeah, so Moon Show, they get it in 2003. We had to wait till 2021. Yeah. <laughs> and I feel like my whole Scorched Earth diatribe might have, you know, derailed other conversation that you guys might have want to have about Margot. I mean, <laughs> don't let me stop you. I mean, I've, you know, I've said my piece. I, I, I love Margot no matter what she's doing. Like, I will happily watch her sit there doing quadratic equations, and I have. So I'm all for it. You <laughs> well, know? Good for you, man. And, and I'm, I'm still... I'm still holding out hope that Margot is playing Irina, Irina a little bit as well. So we'll see. We'll I mean, see. and, and, you know, they have, they absolutely set up where Aleda and Margot are going to, are they, I mean, they can't it, not. Exactly. <laughs> like, I feel like the writers have maneuvered Aleda into this new job so that she'll have mm-hmm. the opportunity to interact with uh, Margot. But Nevertheless, I like what they're doing with their character because I, I like that the show is, you know, depicting the very real world thing, you know, where being so-called promoted actually means your job becoming, you know, if not entirely hellish, just something <laughs> something you didn't want. You mm-hmm. know, moving into management or an administration is it's like it's good on paper and only on paper. Like, you know, hashtag no disrespect to administrators, i.e. previous panelist Tom. But like no one dreams of becoming a pencil pusher. But back to Aleda, Kelly <laughs> says that Aleda might surprise herself and, you know, be good at the job. Uh, I'm not so sure. <laughs> I don't know. Do we think Aleda is capable of being like a schmoozer and like no. convincing senators to like back her? I, I think that what we're going to find with Aleda is she might be the only one because she doesn't give She's got zero fucks to Cause give. Because she, she is so caustic. She, she, can, she can stand up to Arena. So that might give us a fighting chance to at least have some kind of presence in the room. That's, that's the, only, the, the only plus I can think of. Indeed. I had the same thought that like maybe, you know, it has to be Aleda to go to Russia because she's the only one who will just be as caustic as Arena. I yep. was surprised at the the scene where the the business guy i forget what his name name is yeah i don't know if they even gave him a name i don't know he he, he introduced himself i can't it was like brad or ted or something like that i don't know what it was <laughs> um but did you did you look over the, i was expecting aleda to be like totally prepared and just totally shred the guy and he's like you didn't look at any of it did you it's like, no it's like all right you got to do that <laughs> so it was that was not how i expected that scene to go it wasn't bad it wasn't like he came in all condescending or anything. He was just like, he almost got the impression that that Dev went, all right, look, she doesn't want to do this, but she has to. So kind of nudge her in the right direction. But why would Dev choose her to do that? Because she was in front of him at the time. Do you, do you literally think it's that basic? I think that's how Dev works. Yeah. We saw, no. we've seen that before where he's just kind of like, or maybe not necessarily in that moment, but he was just like, oh, I'm going to go. Uh, all right, fucking Aleda can take it. No, I think that Dev is cannier than that. And I think that maybe he sees that she, if if she gets out of her comfort zone, and I think that he thinks that she will take to it. I think that he thinks that because she's got such a strong in, independent streak that she'll be like him when, when he is gone. So I think he sees a kindred spirit. And that's why he's just like, you know what? I I know that when I throw this at her, she's like me. She'll run with it. She'll do something with it. I don't know. Uh, that's again the only thing that that makes sense. And it's also good to see Aleda out of you know out of her depth yeah. because she's used to being the smartest person in the room. 
because Margot taught her how to be the smartest person in the room. So it's, you know, it, it, it's, it's her facing actually a challenge that goes beyond her comfort zone, which I think is pretty cool. And, and that's, that's kind of what I was, what I was getting at was I liked that she couldn't bullshit her way through the situation. He, he just like said, you know, you're, you're lying to me. I know you're lying to me. You can't afford to lie about this shit. You got to do it. And it, and, he, and it wasn't like, you know, and a lot of times in, in other shows, you know, it would have been just, all right, I'll take care of it. You just, you just sit back. No, he was like, you got to step up. You know, he wasn't condescending. He wasn't insulting. He was just, we got to do this shit and you have, you know, this much time and we're going to Russia. And Rick, you had something else to say? Just, I really enjoyed the scene in, in the bar where both Kelly and Aleda were telling each other, I don't think I can do what I have to do. And they're both saying, oh no, you're, you're better than you think you. Again, relatable. Everyone thinks that everyone sees everyone else's problems as simple and easily surmountable. And we all look at our own problems as being the end of the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just I thought I just thought it was it was interesting because it didn't even dawn on me at, until it was after after the scene was over and then I realized they were both pumping each other up while tearing themselves down. Yeah, yeah I yeah. think that's more what it has to do with. I don't think it was that they they saw that person's problems as lesser and more surmountable. They saw that person as stronger and more capable of handling a, a difficult problem where they don't feel confident in doing it themselves. Yeah, and I did like Aleda's uh, what what she said to to Kelly about. Your kid's going to hate you. Yeah. You know, no matter what you do. Because <laughs> yeah. I'm like, my daughter is 12. And I know that I've got maybe a year left of being the best dad in the universe. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I'm going to enjoy every moment that she enjoys being around me while I can. I'm not sure that was a fair thing of Aleda to say. Because it's like one thing to say that every kid like ends up kind of like being annoyed with their parent. It's another to say like, if you're abandoning your kid for a year, like it doesn't matter. Which is the well, context of yeah. that conversation, right? Like, it, it, it was a very Aleda way to put it. but the st- Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And also inter- interesting thing to come from Aleda's mouth, considering that, I mean, her mother... Her mother died, right? She didn't like abandon Alita. She she died. Yeah, she, she died and before then, and they then, left Mexico. Yeah, yeah, and then her father was deported. So I mean, you know, she wasn't like abandoned per se, but she definitely felt the brunt of no longer having her parents around. Yeah. So for her to yeah. tell another parent like leave the kid is like <laughs> is odd. But I think she was just she was I think truthfully saying your children will resent you no matter what you do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is true. But so then, okay, so that brings us to Kelly. I mean, Rick, you're the only parent on the panel tonight, unless, Chris, you have uh, secret kids I don't know about. Uh, once they come knocking on the door, you'll be the first person I call. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, so Rick, what do you think of uh, Kelly's decision to bring uh, her bebe to Mars? Uh, I, I think it's, I, I liked it. I was concerned. Okay. I kind of went through a, a spectrum on this episode because- one thing I've learned as a parent that really took me by surprise is that when Sharon was younger, she was less aware of things than I thought she was. And so I was really expecting, because Aleda's son is eight, I was kind of expecting him to, when she told him she was going to be gone, I was oh, okay. Because there were a lot of times when I would like agonize over something that I would have to tell Sharon. I was like, I, you know, I've got to go away for the week. I, you know, I went away for a week. I was like, all right, I'm going to be gone for a week, but I'll be back. It'll be, and she'll, she'll be like, all right. And, you know, barely acknowledged that I told her anything. Or, and I would call from the hotel room, be like, hey, baby, I miss you, Sharon. She's watching TV, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so sometimes kids can be incredibly oblique and oblivious. 
but other times, it, the, the I guess the point I'm making is you never know when they're paying attention. Right. So when she had that conversation with with Alec, when I and, and I had forgotten about the whole Ed aspect because here's more of Ed's assholeness having ripple effects. Uh, you know, when he said, "What if you decide to never come back like Poppy did?" And I was like, "That." And then he ran to Grandma. For right. Kelly, seeing her seeing her mother-in-law Alex, comforting exactly. her child because of something Kelly did, she that's probably what instigates her to start thinking like, okay, I've got to figure this out. I cannot abandon my child. I was very concerned when Kelly decided to go ahead and go. And I was very relieved when she said she's taking she's taking Alex with her. And I also like the show acknowledging that he is a Mars baby and Mm -hmm. he has health problems probably from being premature and, or from being born not on earth. And that perhaps from a health perspective, being in the lower gravity will be beneficial. I like the show. Anytime the show does something where it's like, this is an unusual situation. We're in space. I like that. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, it might sort of suck for Alex being the only child on Mars. But on the other hand, I think, like I said, the whole episode, I was yelling at Kelly. I'm like, take him with you. <laughs> like, <laughs> like now, do one... not leave your kid. And so I like that she made that decision. Something you all said last week, and I was like, uh, I, I think I, I blew it off. Grandma was being an absolute bitch this time. <laughs> she was just like looking straight at Kelly going, it'll be all right. <laughs> I think she was being a bitch. She was like telegraphing to Kelly, like, this is a shitty thing you're doing. You're being exactly like your shitty dad, who's a big pile of shit. Mm. All right. I might be generalizing here, but I've I've met a couple of Russian people in my day. And even when they like you, no matter what, there's just something about their inflection that it, it comes across as total disdain for you as just a human being on every level. <laughs> so it's it could just be a cultural thing. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, yeah, throw no shade on our uh, potential Russian audience. Uh, <laughs> anyway. Okay, well, we'll move on to our most beloved characters, Ed and Danielle. Uh, I watched this episode with Gus, and uh, he's been an Ed defender from the start. But even he was like, I cannot be on Team Ed in this. <laughs> like, Ed is off the rails. Uh, I'm still afraid of what he might do, but uh, I am I now too. Kind of, yeah, because yeah. he's whew. But I do think it's kind of funny that he's being presumably sent back to Earth at the exact same time that Kelly is being sent <laughs> up. Yep, I think that's very like, deliberate. Yeah, yep. talk about cosmic punishment. Well, they never said sent back. She just relieved him of command. Indeed, but one yeah. would assume, right? Like, yeah. I mean, I mean if he's, it'll be interesting to see next episode because he might yeah. engineer it so that he doesn't get sent back. Right? Indeed. I, yeah. If I can go into Scott's speculation corner, I think that <laughs> Kelly's going to be on the rocket in while Ed is on the rocket out and they're going to wave to each other. I mean, not that I like have any, well, I was going to say, I don't have any ill will towards Ed, so I don't want him to like suffer more, but maybe I do. I mean, Ed is so awful. To the same show. (laughs) The argument with Danielle showed me something that I hadn't quite twigged onto yet, and it dawned on me this afternoon because when Ed finally got Danielle to tell him to fuck off, and he's like, "Yeah, there it is." He didn't give a shit about 
any of it. He just wanted to control her. He wanted to make her lose it. Well, he wants her to be as bad as him. Yeah. He he doesn't want her to like be the, you know, the have the moral high ground. He wants everyone to be on his level, whether that's high up or low down. He I, wants to set the tone. I was half expecting her to deck him. I would have been like, like on my feet applauding if she had just punched Ooh. him out. I, I, I have reasons for all of this in my head, and it goes more into the allegorical stuff that I see happening this season. So I feel like just as Moores represents the 21st century, Ed represents not only not only the 20th century, but like sort of the American ideal, the the, the pinnacle of the 20th century. Do you guys ever watch the show Mad Men? Does anyone mm-hmm. hear? Yeah. Do you remember when Burt Cooper died? He uh, was watching the Mars landing. Uh, the, the Mars landing. Listen, listen to me. He was watching mm-hmm. the moon landing mm-hmm. and uh, he saw Armstrong on the moon with the American flag. And that's when he he just closed his eyes and he died. Be, and it's like his entire worldview was confirmed in that one moment of the superiority and just the, the privilege and just the, this is the right world and we built it. And I feel like he's not just Burt Cooper. I mean, Ed is the guy on the moon. So mm-hmm. he represents sort of, again, that 20th century ideal, that rocket age fantasy of the achievements that Moonshow ran with. It, it, it just kept going in this universe. Like those promises actually came to fruition. So for Ed to now be on Mars, which represents to me the 21st century, he's ultimately going to become the most twisted, bitter individual in the world. He used to do, in my opinion, I, I like that a lot because... I could understand where he was coming from. You always knew where you stood with him. And sometimes if he did the, the wrong things, he did them for the right reason. Anyway, what he saw is the right reason. Now he's just doing the wrong things for the wrong reasons because he is physically incapable of doing the job anymore. He is completely outmoded. The society that he represents is pretty much back on the heap of history. And he does not know what to do with it. So now everything that he does is a reaction, lashing out in fear and anger at his own increasing irrelevance. So it's no wonder that you guys were giving him more of a benefit of the doubt when Svetlana was sent home last time, that she was sent home. You guys were saying, well, he's he's starting to fall for her and, you know, it's someone that he could relate to and it reminds him of Karen and maybe there's some romance. He did not give a shit about Svetlana. Svetlana to him was cover your ass. As long as I have her on my side, I can continue controlling these missions and flying them. She she can fly for me. And I think you did it right at the end. But I was yelling at my radio. (laughs) Like, you guys, come on. This is I I called her his safety deck. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I feel like again, we have no choice but for Ed to come to this place based on allegorically what he represents for the series. And it's too bad because I think like a once grade character. It's almost inevitable that he's going to become just this twisted shadow of his former self. And I think it's very deliberate that right now when he becomes irrelevant on Mars and he's ready to go back to Earth or maybe even forced back to Earth, the only reason for him to go back is that future that is represented in Kelly and in Alex. And they're going where he is because that's where they're relevant. She is the only one that can do what she can do on Mars. And she is needed there. And she is the new Ed. So it's just like, it's just this cosmic joke. I, it's brilliant. It's fucking brilliant. And that was something I was trying to bring up earlier. And I, I got sidetracked because that's what I do. Because you're you. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Kelly said in her monologue, 
that Ed can help watch Alex. And I was I would I was gonna wonder, has she talked to Ed or is she just assuming? Yeah. And, yeah, I'm sure she's assuming. And here's the other thing. I mean, Danielle represents what Ed represents in many ways, but as someone who had to fight for her position as, you know, a woman of color and a minority and, you know, just in, in every way had none of the privilege that Ed had, except for the fact that, you know, she was a pilot and they were calling for, you know, Nixon's Nixon's women. I mean, Danielle understands what it is to be oppressed and to have to to earn and and fight doubly hard for what it is that you deserve, where Ed just stepped into it. So that's why she is adept at going forward into the 21st century, even though she embodies a lot of the ideals of the 20th century, she never had the assumption that it was her birthright. So that's the way I look at the dichotomy between Ed and Danny on Mars, because she comes from a completely different, even though they come from the same place, you know, in many ways, she's from a completely different universe than he is. And she has the the skills and the experience to deal with what, what he can't deal with. Yeah. Well said. Mm-hmm. I've had a lot of thoughts about Moon Show, and this is the first time you've invited <laughs> me on. I'm sorry if I'm filibustering. That is not true. This no, is no, the it's first the first time I've been it's invited the first time, It's on. the first time I've been able to come on. Yes. I'm sorry. You're, you're invited every week. <laughs> All right. Even though, so, even though I'm full of shit. Thank you, Nick. <laughs> so, Kevin, did you have something to, to add before I move on to Danielle? Well, again, I think what Chris said just now was very insightful. And to to add on to it, and to come back to what you originally brought up, Nick, in terms of like ambition, I kind of feel like, yeah, there, there's an intentional dichotomy between the Ed era characters and then the Danielle era and then the modern like Kelly era where like Ed's ambition is like very self-directed. Like it's about it's about yay America, but also about yay Ed. Like Ed has to be the one kind of seen to win, whereas the Kelly version of it is much more altruistic or like human society or like let's find life. Like her her being recognized for it is like secondary and incidental. And the show is essentially saying that like the ed version worked and maybe even was necessary during the early phases to like make something happen but he's now like anachronistic like that just doesn't work in this in this new era and what you need in this new era are the daniels and the kellys to like lead the way absolutely agreed i i like that comparison between danielle and kelly because if i had to just like off the top of my head say like who are the characters on this show who are not purely selfish it's danielle and kelly and and Danielle, you could almost make the argument that she's too selfless. She takes her self-sacrifice to an extreme. You know, she nearly wrecked her career by covering for Gordo on the moon. And she nearly killed herself through starvation by giving her rations to Danny on Mars. So the question is, is Danielle too self-sacrificing? And I'm going to stay with you, Kevin, because I know that you've argued in the past that her actions with Gordo were perhaps unethical. Yeah, that's right. I think I think for Gordo, her covering up for him was was unethical because basically like putting everyone else at risk because she wanted to like help her friend. Like so that doesn't seem okay. But your question here is, is she too self-sacrificing? I think essentially yes. Like she's also self-sacrificing in going to Mars at all. Like she had she was yes. done. Like she had retired and, and like and then they said, No, we need you. And then she agreed, but why? Like she's self-sacrificing to her detriment and even i mean the show in some sense is like portraying it as like it worked like in every instance like things came out okay although i guess you could say uh danny the lesser dying is an example of her like of it not working out despite her her best efforts but i guess what i'm trying to say is the show is essentially showing that her self-sacrifices work out but i think in real life there is such a thing as like self-sacrificing to your detriment like 
like for instance, there's like, you know, if there's a fire or there's a room without oxygen or something like that, the thing they tell you to do is like, don't run in. You see a body in there. You don't run in and try and drag that body out because then now there's two bodies that are in danger, right? Like, unless you have the proper training and breathing apparatus, like you don't run into a room and try and like save someone. Um, so in other words, like sacrificing yourself doesn't make sense unless, unless you know that you you can be successful. And so I think she pushes it too far. I'm not sure I agree with that. I don't think she has. Uh, well, okay. The, the something that they did in this episode that kind of took me by surprise was the communication from her husband where he was like, we miss you, but we know that you need to be there. You're doing the right thing. You know, we're, we're doing fine down here. Uh, just record a little something for, for the wedding, please. As opposed to every other time when it's just like, oh, we suck without you. You're you abandoned. You know, the, the way the show has gone in the past. It's been everybody who is on the moon or on Mars or in space has been racked with guilt for leaving the people behind. And in this one, it was like her husband going, you're my superhero. Go, go fix everything and we'll be here when you get back. And I think that kind of took the curse off of it. You're right. Danny does put others above herself, maybe, maybe too much, but I don't see it as having harmed her or her, her family at all. I, I, I see it as, as having harmed her. I mean, Talking to uh, Kevin's reference about someone in a burning building, you don't run in. It reminded me of whenever you're on a plane and they say when the oxygen masks drop mm-hmm. down, uh, fix yours before fixing it to your child. Danny never fixes hers first. And because of that, she suffers needlessly when she doesn't have to. And this is the one part of the episode that I'm trying to figure out. Um, they had uh, her trying to give that message for the wedding. And she was just like, you know, all smiles and marriages. And marriage is, and she couldn't even think of a way to finish the sentence, and she becomes totally crestfallen about it. So, is she still is she still feeling guilt over the loss of her first husband? You totally she... misread that scene, yeah. in my opinion. That Did was I? that was the uh, Ed thing. Yeah, exactly. I had the same interpretation, Rick, because she was saying in her speech, you know, marriage is a partnership, and then her mind goes to Ed, where she's like, she's had a partnership with Ed all these years, and her unwillingness to call him out on his bullshit is part of her self-sacrifice and it has harmed everyone wow wow mind blown thank you guys (laughs) (laughs) i can't go into details for legal reasons but i so identified with danielle when palmer talked to her because as a supervisor as a, a person in authority i have had its situations where I've been given information I really wish I didn't know and I had to take action on it and I had to take action that I would that I would really have rather not had to deal with so um who plays Danielle Chris Marshall yeah uh, her portrayal of that moment the the way her whole the the smile was the was the mask and then it crumbled yeah and, yeah when she was saying you know teamwork and a, and you know partnership and stuff like that and she was like I can't ignore this I don't want to know this. I don't want to deal with this. I'm in charge up here and I uh, and I I can't ignore it. And that just so read on her face beautifully. She's been accepting Ed's bullshit since the moon days and she's been covering for him since the moon days. And she can't do that anymore. Perhaps if back in the moon days with the Gordo situation, if she had pushed a little harder, you know, we wouldn't be here now with Ed, with him thinking he can get away with whatever. But it, I mean, at least she finally got to to break and relieve him of duty. Ah, oh, what a mm, yeah. yum. I love it. <laughs> <laughs>
Sometimes but, Moonshow gives us what we want. When, when, when she was just <laughs> screaming "fuck you" at him, I was like, "Yeah, yes! <laughs> yeah." Except we all were, including Ed, right? Like I yeah, said previously, for, for, he for just he reason, wanted right? her to be lowered to his level. He drove her to it. It was nice seeing Karen again, even if it was just a yeah. A I had the same thought. I was like, "Oh." It wasn't nice seeing Danny the Lesser again, though. No, but <laughs> at least now way. we know. Mind you, like I, you know, the despair on his face where he's like begging to come back. I was like, "Poof!" They made me feel sympathy for this. Like, let's not forget murderer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and yeah. Danielle would have been totally justified in going, "Dude, you killed people." Yeah, but she is, well, and that's he was still kept- compassionate. And I kept expecting her to say that to Ed when Ed was seemingly blaming her for Danny the Lesser's death, for her to be like, ah, hello, he killed people. And it's your fault that, okay, whatever. I ranted about this last week. (laughs) I will move on. (laughs) Was anybody, after Danielle left Ed's cabin, we got like maybe two seconds of a shot of Ed and then the episode ended. It felt a little abrupt to me. Maybe I was just expecting some sort of uh, just a moment to to see Ed fulminate on what just happened, but that but you know it it just cut to black after you know very quickly. It, it, that didn't I didn't find it jarring. No, okay. I mean, I didn't at the time, but now that you bring it up, I mean, it it would be interesting to see that reaction because like I, I think we all agree that like Ed says these crazy things when he's fighting, not because he truly believes them, but just because he's like gets into this like fight or flight mode and he's angry. So it would be interesting to see. But on the other hand, like what just happened is like the worst thing that he could imagine happening to him. Right. So like right after that, does he like suddenly feel regret? Like, oh, I really screwed up. Or is he still like super angry and being like, no, she is just plain wrong. Like I should still have flight status. So I guess we'll see next episode what his reaction is. But yeah, so. so that's it. Maybe it's quite deliberate that they didn't show us his reaction because they want us to be on it's the expression Tinder hooks waiting for yeah. the reaction next week. They, mm. they've, they've got us hooked. I, I feel like the reaction is a foregone conclusion because Ed has become completely one note at this point. If it's one thing that I want to take the show to task for, but again, I, I mentioned earlier that they don't really have a choice if they're going to play it the way I think they're playing it. I mean, you took what was one of the best characters um, and, and completely destroyed him. And it's like, I don't want to leave Moonshow disliking Ed, but that's just the way it's going to end for him. Like, But to defend the show and... Not that everything, not that every character has to be, you know, so-called realistic, because you're right, a lot of the time it's metaphor, but that is what happens to people. People are relevant, and then they stop being relevant. And sometimes people we love change and become, you know, Mm. I was going to say merely tolerable, and sometimes not even that. Sometimes they change so much that they're unrecognizable. Ed should have left long ago but he would he i mean he couldn't because he's ed but yeah he should have retired maybe after the after the first mars mission and he shouldn't i i was arguing he shouldn't have been there in the first place it was just way too old but but that's also realistic right that's also an example of something that happens in real life where people who get a foothold and then they refuse to leave we've all known the doctor Mm -hmm. who's like 80 years old still practicing and who's not up on the latest research and they're still prescribing the same old bullshit. And you're like, dude, like. And when you think about it, Ed was in the position to make the rules. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. of course, he was going to be the first in line for everything. So, yeah. And, fo- and following up on what you said, Nick, like, I-, I also like the fact that it's kind of showing, you know, some characters age more gracefully than others. Like Danielle kind of like 
you know, is okay. Whereas Ed is kind of like fish out of water. Like, and I like the generational aspect to this show. Like very few shows are like that. In a lot of shows, it's like the series ends and it's just kind of like, okay, happily ever after, you know, whatever these characters are doing fine. But like, even though it's not easy to watch, like it is a true to life to see someone kind of like grow old in a not graceful way. And so like, yeah. it is interesting to to see. I'm, I like the fact that they're willing to do that with some of their characters, even though yeah. it is hard to watch sometimes. Yeah, because most shows, you never get to see someone span that much time. Yeah, But we do see that in our real lives. We've all known, you know, the grandparent or whatever who gets dementia and is stops being the same person. And, you know, we just, I, I don't want to keep repeating the same words, but who stops being relevant? And we've all felt it probably in our own lives where like at a certain point in your life, you're watching a show and you're like, oh, I'm not the target demographic anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, the vi- I'm the villain in this episode, yeah. not, not, Wait a minute. The, not the kid. You know? Yeah, like this isn't for me. They're going to rip the mask off my face? <laughs> <laughs> so maybe our resistance to seeing Ed I don't know, taken down a peg or, you know, the devolution of his character is us resisting our own aging and our own lack of relevance as time goes on. The the only saving grace that Ed might have had, had he been able to let go, he might have been around his daughter and his grandson and had those as tempering influences on the way he saw himself and his role in the world or the worlds in this case. Mm. But he just was not able to step back from himself in order to to look at that next generation for those of us without kids shit what chance do we stand i guess i'll just have to keep buying dogs i don't know (laughs) (laughs) oh we've we've got our podcasts as our legacy (laughs) there we go (laughs) thanks nick i feel so much better (laughs) i'm in the same boat I've told my daughter, you know, there's hundreds of hours of audio of me when, when I'm gone, and she doesn't seem to be comforted by that. <laughs> it's like, thanks, Dad. That'll be great listening. <laughs> okay, is there anything else from this episode we want to discuss? No, I think we've... Uh, we've, we've covered we've a lot of ground. covered it all, yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, so we will wrap it up. Uh, Kevin, I know you don't have anything to promote, unless you do. I do not. Is that chatbot you wrote, is that available to the public or that's just for work? Uh, it's just for work right now, but we're, we're trying to make it available to the public uh, soon enough. Yeah. So would the public even want it? It's I so mean, specific. I mean, the public, meaning my colleagues who work in nanoscience will want it. Yeah. It's like <laughs> a, nan- a nanoscience optimized chatbot. Yeah. I mean, when you when you ask the question, like, do you have anything to plug? I sometimes say, like, well, check my like Google Scholar profile it has all my publications on there. Go ahead and read them. It's like, I, I don't think anyone cares. Because like mom sent me the article that was about you. And then uh-huh. and then within that article, there was a link to like a more scientific article. Yeah. And I tried to read that one. And I was like, ah, <laughs> don't know. I've, I've had that experience with the uh, with like various There'll be like some big science thing. And like, I really want to know what the hell is really going on. And I'll follow the sources and finally get back to the original paper and go, wow. Yeah. <laughs> I think yeah. I understand every third word. in that. Thing. <laughs> the individual words have meaning to me, but in that configuration. <laughs> in that particular order, like why, why would you put them in that order? Yeah. yeah. Did, this, so like... did this paper just have a stroke? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, read read the paper. There you go. That's my plug. <laughs> read all about 
nanotechnology and how AI can help you do nanotechnology? That's right. Yeah, it'll help you brainstorm about nanotechnology. Excellent. That's a good use for AI. Okay, Rick, what have you got to plug? Just listen to all the shows on the network. They're fantastic. And, uh, you know, support your local podcasters. Go to Patreon and and support uh, Super Anemic. It's really worth it. And Chris, tell us about your podcast, which is your legacy. <laughs> it's so sad. I am a host of the Quantum Leap podcast. You can find us at quantumleappodcast.com. Uh, if you haven't listened, uh, you should listen this week because I spent today, before I got on mic with Neek and this wonderful panel, speaking to the cast of Quantum Leap. And then I spent another hour speaking to the executive producer of Quantum Leap. And both of those interviews are going to air on Wednesday. By the time you hear this, that should also be available. So go to quantumleappodcast.com. They're heading into their um, mid-season break. And then the show will be on hiatus for a little while, but it's ending in a terrific place. And we have some terrific interviews to psych you up for when it comes back. So quantumleappodcast.com or any podcatcher uh, that you have, just say, play the Quantum Leap podcast. It should come up. Excellent. And as for me, I'm a regular panelist on that Star Trek podcast, and I make occasional appearances on Cosmic Potato and Captain Game Show. And if you like Moon Show, you probably like Star Trek. So you can find my weekly recaps of Star Trek episodes at superanemic.com. And with that, we say bye, Bob. Bye, Bob. Bye, Bob. Bye, Bob. How am I supposed to trust you? Come on, Ninja. You know I'd never put anyone in danger. I'm not so sure I do anymore. You should have gone home a long time ago. Be with your daughter and your grandson. Is that why you went home so quickly? Be with your family. Or maybe it was because you're the one really running away. Watch yourself, Ed. Or what? You're already talking about clipping my wings. What else is there? You gonna exile me to that North Korean capsule? Give me a Bible to read. Fuck you! There it is. Fuck you! I have been putting up with your shit for the last 30 years! Watching you make wrong decision after wrong decision! Only thinking about yourself like you're God's gift to the cosmos. Well, I have news for you, Ed Baldwin. You are just a pathetic old man who doesn't know when to call it a day. Yeah. Unlike you, I'm not a fucking quitter. No, Ed. And luckily, that is not your concern anymore. You're done. What the hell are you talking about? You are hereby removed from flight status and relieved of your duties as XO on this base. Don't do anything you're going to regret. I got a lot of regrets in my life, Ed. This ain't going to be one of them. Thank you for listening to Moon Show, a For All Mankind podcast on the Infinite Potato Alliance. For more great shows, please go to infinitepotato.com. Our theme music is Small Victory by Steve Combs, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. You can find more of his music at freemusicarchive.org slash music slash Steve underscore Combs. Yeah, we've lost our audio again. Yeah, he knows his mic is out and he's angry. He's he's trying not to punch the wall. Because <laughs> when it does that, you know that that chime your computer makes when a device disconnects? That ding, ding, ding. It just goes ding, 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 while it's trying to fucking connect to one of the microphones that can't figure out what it's doing. <sighs> okay.
At least I know when I can't, when y'all can't hear me. It's not like I'm going on and on and you're like, we can't hear a word you're saying. Like John that time. Yeah. Cannot hear you, John, which is maybe a blessing. <laughs> you're muted, yeah. 